0: This week and next week we're going to be looking at two passages in Luke chapter 14 and it's all about Jesus' great banquet feast, all about Jesus' great banquet feast and what he has to teach us on that. So Luke 13 verse 31 down to 14 verse 11. At that very hour some Pharisees came and said to him, that is Jesus, get away from here How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully and behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy, So that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray for God's help with this. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for your words. We pray we would listen to them. We pray we would rely on you and Jesus and for what he has done. Lord, open up our eyes and our hearts and our mind to understand what you're teaching us and the joy it is to be a Christian. And we pray this in your name. Amen. There's one big question hanging over this whole section of Luke. One big question that we're going to address tonight. And that big question is, who is saved? Who are the people that are saved We've been looking at Acts in our motto series, as Scott was saying, kind of the certainty in the gospel that goes out, the power of the gospel, the power of the good news of Jesus, the unstoppable force going out and telling people. And what we have tonight in Luke is a kind of a step back, the prequel to Acts. What we have is the solidifying of the gospel message, telling us for certain what it is we believe and who it is, and what it is that is saving us. And tonight the question is, who is saved? Who is the people that get this message, that get to understand it and get to be saved? The big question that overhangs this whole section. And it's a massive question. It's a question that every single one of us here tonight has to know the answer to. Whether we believe in the Bible or whether we don't believe in the Bible, here tonight, here in Morningside, Every person that we know and love needs to know the answer to the question, who is saved? Because it has eternal consequences. The implications are not just for life now, but they're for our eternity. Who is saved? And I say that it kind of hangs over this whole section of Luke. If you look back up to verse 23 of 13, this kind of is an umbrella question that runs on until chapter 17. And as one of Jesus' followers asks him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Will there be few? How many of us are there? What does it take to be someone who is saved? Who are they? What does it take? And this question rumbles on and on. And every single one of us needs to know the answer to this question. Every single one of us who's here, all you guys who are doing CU Events Weeks over the coming week, We need to know the answer of what it takes to be saved. And then this message for you guys who are going out with CU Events Week in mind is, this message is what sends you out, but it's also the message that you go with. And a story I kind of thought of to help us illustrate this is The Titanic. It's a fantastic film. It's one of my favorite films, actually. It's a fantastic film, but it's a tragic story. It's a real tragedy if you've not seen the film, you'll at least know the whole story of the Titanic. The tragedy was there were 2,200 passengers and crew on a boat that had 20 lifeboats. The lifeboats were bigger than your normal lifeboat, but they could hold a maximum with all 20 lifeboats of 1,200 people. That is 1,000 people who wouldn't have made it onto a lifeboat. 1,000 souls that were lost. Not everyone was able to be saved. And what's interesting in the film, if you've seen it, is that the women and children go on first and they have priority. But then the question is raised is, who else gets to go on this boat, on this lifeboat? Who else gets saved? It was almost a free-for-all, but if you are one of the top paying customers in the film. It's Cal Hockley. He's kind of the villain in the film. You don't really like him that much. He expects to be on the boat. He's a first-class passenger. He's paid top dollar for his seat on the Titanic, so he expects to get on. The rich people, the people who had bought the first-class tickets, expected to get on to the lifeboats, but the crew kind of them back And that's the question that is hanging over Luke right now. He does this thing where he kind of shows it's a narrow door. The people who are saved is a narrow door. And it's not the people you expect that are saved. Or to put it more sharply, it's not the people who expect to be saved that are saved. And that's what we have tonight. And I've split it into four sections in our passage. overhanging question is who is saved and if you, just the simplest version is, it's not these people, it's not these people, it's not these people, but these people. It's not those who resist, it's not those who stand in judgment of Jesus, not those who self-exalt, but those who humbly accept Jesus. If you want to follow along with me, verse 31 to 35, the first point. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The three sections are kind of three scenes as to these people who are not going to be saved. There we go. And the first section we have is this, it's story, you have to understand the story is Jesus on his way to Jerusalem. From chapter 9 in Luke, you have this long, winding journey of Jesus on his way to Jerusalem, where he goes in to enter as king and then eventually dies on a cross. He's the saviour that dies for the sins of the world, and we're just following this journey just now. And what we have is people who are resisting that mission. I don't know if you saw that, who are resisting his mission to go to Jerusalem and his mission to go to the cross. If you see it in the language that Luke uses, he loses deliberate language to try and emphasize this point. Do you see how the Pharisees are not wanting Jesus to go what he's going to do? They say, Go away, for Herod wants to kill you. And this actually seems like a good thing. This is kind of, it seems like they're offering some help. They've turned over a new leaf. They're trying to protect. Jesus, because the Pharisees have been against him time and time again, but it seems here that actually they're trying to help, maybe they're trying to overthrow the Roman rule and power, and they're actually on Jesus' side in this one. But I think in actual fact what they're doing is they're just trying to push him off course, they're trying to get him out of the way so people will stop listening to him. And that's because Herod is someone that they're not against using to have Jesus killed, only eight chapters on from here. They use Herod to have Jesus killed themselves. What they're trying to do is just push Jesus out of the way and get him out of the limelight. And you just see how they're at odds. They're kind of resisting what Jesus is doing, even subtly. They don't want him to go in his way. They say, "Go away from here, go away." And Jesus says, "I have to go. I have to go to Jerusalem." It's what I came here to do. You see, it says, Go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out the demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And then the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. So you have these Pharisees who are trying to push him out the way. Jesus is saying, I have to go. And then you see again, they say, the is trying to kill you. And Jesus' response is, I have to go to Jerusalem to die. Jesus isn't against the idea of dying. He's saying, I have to go to Jerusalem to die. It's this resisting, this blocking his route, trying to throw him off course of what he's doing today. And then the rejection is felt really sharply in verse 33 and 34. He says, a prophet can't perish away from Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Jerusalem is going to reject. It's not just the Pharisees who resist him; it's Jerusalem itself that are going to reject Jesus and his mission of what he came to do. G- Jerusalem, this Jewish hub, the headquarters of God's people, and this is where Jesus is going to die. They're resisting Jesus as the Messiah, as the Savior who is coming to them. And you see it again emphasized in verse thirty-five. He says, I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's from Psalm 118, a psalm that is all about the entrance of the king to Jerusalem. And Jesus saying, I have to go to Jerusalem as the king, but they're going to reject me, nail him to a cross. They welcome him at the start, but they nail him to a cross at the end. These people are almost pushing back the very lifeboat that is there to save them. Are literally pushing Jesus away from Jerusalem. Resisting him, resisting him in his mission. The city is forsaken. They reject Jesus. And that's what Jesus is saying. Who is saved? It's not those who reject and resist Jesus. And I guess it's really easy for us today in 2019 to say, oh, woe is the Pharisees. Woe is them who wouldn't accept Jesus, who resist him, who push him away from Jerusalem. But it is as true today as it was then. People who reject Jesus going to the cross, outright or subtly, reject him going to the cross, reject his mission. People who say Jesus didn't have to go to the cross Jesus didn't go to the cross for my sin. Jesus was a good example. He was a good moral leader. I like his opinions, but I don't think he had to die for my sin. We have to know that Jesus had to die. Jesus tells us it's his only purpose in coming. He says, I have to go to Jerusalem to die. So those who are not saved are those who reject this idea that Jesus went to the cross. But those who are saved are those who agree with this, who accept Jesus for who he is, who humbly accept Jesus as the saviour that we needed. Those who are saved are those who see Jesus going to the cross and love it. Not love the idea of Jesus going to the cross, but that he has done it for us that he has died, that it has happened. Who see the weight of Jesus coming to earth and dying on a cross, the necessity of it. So that's the first point, point. that's those who reject Jesus. And we're just gonna quickly fire through all three of these scenes and just kind of take a picture of what it is to be saved, who it is that are saved. Follow along in verse 1, 2, 3. 6. Remember, this is in a, the setting is in a dinner party. And this setting carries on into next week's passage, but tonight we're going to stop at verse 11. The dinner party is at the house of a Pharisee, the head of the Pharisees, the head honcho. And I'll read it out. One Sabbath he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. They were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. of a Pharisee's, a dinner party. And what happens is, they're having this dinner party, it's just almost the introduction of this, and right in the middle of the room is this man with dropsy, kind of thrust into the middle of this room. Dropsy is a disease, my wife tells me, a disease that is a build-up of fluid on tissue. And this person would have been nowhere near, she didn't tell me this, I found this one out, you wouldn't have been anywhere near the Pharisee party. And it's like one of those movie scenes where you watch the main character walk in and you see that it's a setup and he has no idea. They're trying to catch this person out. It's like a setup up or a sting operation to make him say something they can use against him. You see that at the end of verse 1, it says they were watching him carefully. And then in verse 3, if you follow, Jesus responds to the lawyers and Pharisees, not to a question that they posed to him, But to the man with dropsy pushed into the middle of this party. It's almost like they nudged him forward slowly and then just dropped back to see what Jesus would do. What was he going to do with this man with dropsy? And I mean, it seems like a really odd situation. What's the significance of a man with dropsy being in the middle of a Pharisee party? Well, it was a Sabbath. You see that Jesus says, is it lawful for me to heal on the Sabbath or not? Now the Sabbath was a holy day, a set apart day to point forward to the wonderful new creation rest. And the Pharisees had made it into something that it wasn't, they'd added things to it. They'd add structures as to how you obey this Sabbath. And what we actually see here is that the rules that the Pharisees had put on the Sabbath were going to stop Jesus healing and restoring this man, the very thing that the Sabbath was meant to point to? They put rules around the Sabbath to stop Jesus healing, restoring this man, the very thing that the Sabbath that they're protecting was meant to point to. There's like this dark irony that just runs right through these verses. And Jesus turns to him and says, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And then there's nothing. The Pharisees don't say anything. It's almost as if a tumbleweed would run right through the middle of the room. They're silent. They're egging him on. What's he going to do? And what we have is the Pharisees are sitting in judgment of Jesus to see if he lives up to their standards. They're sitting in judgment of what he is going to do You can see it from the situation that is set up, from the questions, from their silence to Jesus' questions. They're saying, we're not answering you. We're here to see what you will do if you will live up to our standards. And again, I think this is something that's really helpful. I think these verses are really good at just, as Christians, it's helpful for us to analyze the culture around us and what's actually going on. Holding Jesus to certain standards was something, again, that the Pharisees were doing. But I think it's subtly something that we, as a culture, not the church, but as the world, do. What Luke is saying is don't hold Jesus to our standard. Don't hold our culture up against Jesus and see if he matches up. See if he fits the mold of what we need. That's how we judge Jesus today. We almost sit Jesus in the dock, and we make a verdict on him, holding Jesus to our standards. And what it looks like is when someone says, I like Jesus and teaching him some things, but I don't like what he says about this. Or I could believe in God if he didn't have these views on sexuality, on church, on sin, or the world. And Luke is begging us, don't sit in judgment of Jesus, but listen to what he has to say. Don't sit in judgment, but listen to what he has to say. And this is to say that questioning what the Bible says and trying to understand it is a wholly commendable thing. It's a really good thing. But questioning Jesus to trip him up or argue or stir up controversy for the sake of it and not out of a love for God and his word, that's when we or people judge Jesus. They hold up our culture and make sure that Jesus fits into our view of what our savior or what a God should be like. And what's brilliant is the verses carry on. It shows the problem of judging. I think these verses, one to six, have two things going on. They have this idea of judging, but they also have this showing us what religion is actually like if we do it as a set of rules and regulations and a way to be saved. Living by a certain standard. Because he carries on. Jesus takes the man, heals him, and sends him on his way And the Pharisees would be raging. They would be so angry. And straight away Jesus turns to them and shows them their hypocrisy. Where they are wrong. He almost pulls the rug out from underneath them. Follow along. Verse 5. And he said to them, Which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not pull it out? Pull him out. All the rules that they have kept to look good in front of people. And what Jesus is doing, he's showing them, it's almost like a sports car. He's saying this is what religion is like. It's like a sports car with a big stripe down the middle, really nice wheels. It has really double exhaust on the back, a spoiler, really nice leather on the inside. And then Jesus almost lifts up the lid of the hood and shows how disgusting it is on the inside. He lifts up the lid, shows the oil and the muck. And actually what he shows us here is that as a vehicle for salvation, it gets nowhere. He shows what living by a certain standard is actually like and how unloving it is. Right at the heart, Jesus is saying that you guys would do exactly the same thing. You guys would do exactly the same thing if it was more important to you. If it was better for them, they would have done the exact same thing. He's saying, this man with the disease, this dropsy, he's possibly had it his whole life. He's been in discomfort, in pain, an outcast in his town. And you're saying, don't heal him. It's wrong to heal him. And yet you'll pull your cow out of a ditch on a Sabbath. You'll pick your son out of a well. Look at the hypocrisy. You don't even hold to your own standards. You're meant to be people who love God and you don't even love God his people. And do you see the folly in this kind of religion state? Living by certain standards, long robes, long prayers, big donations, that that is what saves us, that's what gets us anywhere. Jesus is saying and showing us that it is not people we love, but ourselves. If we live by certain standards to be saved, it is not people we love, but ourselves, There is nothing but selfishness dressed up in different ways. Think about it as people who would help people, getting on every rota, donating big to charity, even helping our friends and family, saying we do it for a love of them. If we are doing good to be saved, then the only reason we are doing good is for ourselves. If we're doing good to be saved, the only reason we're doing it is for ourselves and for nobody else. We don't love anyone but ourselves. Building up merit and points to be saved. And Luke will say this time and time again, only by God's grace can we be saved. Only by listening to Jesus can we be saved. And it's because we are saved that we love other people. Because of our being saved, we love people selflessly. Selflessly. Not perfectly, but we try. So you have those two pictures in them verses there. He's saying don't judge people and just look at the folly of religion. Look at the folly of trying to live a certain way to please God and to reach his standards. And it pushes forward. It's who is saved. You have the first section, not those who resist. You have the second section, not those who judge Jesus and his words. And Luke is begging us, don't stand in judgment of our creator and saviour. And then the party moves on. Then the verses move on one more time in this party. I mean, the party must have been very strange. You kind of walk in and this man with dropsy is there as almost the starter. And then the main course is Jesus telling them where to sit and how to behave. He watches them take their seat and listen to what he says. When he watched how they chose places of honor, he said to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honoured in the the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. As Jesus noticed how they took their seats, as he watched them scrambling, watched them taking the top seats, the seats of honour, the prestigious seats, he says to them, those who exalt themselves will be humbled, those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is not telling us that when we go to wedding parties we should take the wrong seats and then hope that the host comes and takes us and puts us up to the front in the presence of everyone. What it is saying, and you have to remember who he's saying it to one last time, it's the Pharisees. The Pharisees, as they've taken the seats of honor, they stand tall with a swagger. They think well of themselves, of what they've done for who they are. They were self-righteous in keeping God's law and adhering to that, they were religious and highly thought of. And Jesus tells them, you will be humbled. Jesus tells them, it's not the person who exalts himself that will, be, that will be exalted. It's the person who humbles himself that will be saved. The person who humbles himself will be saved. And again, one last time, it's easy to say, look at the Pharisees, look what they're like. How ridiculous that is. But he's saying to anyone who hasn't accepted Jesus and thinks religion or their own good works will save them. He's saying this to them. You will be humbled. The person who exalts himself, who is law-abiding, who is religious, and it's easy to make a caricature of that, but there's many people who believe that their own good works make their way to salvation. And he's saying is they walk up to the pearly gates and as Peter stands at the gate entrance and they walk up with their resume and all their good works, they're wearing it like a scout badge on them. Walk up with a swagger, expect a massive hug from Peter. Expect that, oh, we're so glad you've arrived. Heaven was lost without you. Peter will humble them and he'll say, who are you? Your name isn't on the list. You haven't made it. And it's really tempting to say this is some sort of caricature of a religious person. But again, I think it's subtly embedded in our culture. A thinking that we are good enough for heaven. That just by being born, we're granted a ticket to heaven. You see this, and I'm not making any comment on someone's salvation, but just when someone dies, we think they're looking down on us from heaven. That's what's said or in heaven gained another angel. Very few people think of themselves as bad or not good enough to get in. It's almost a right, unless we mess up horribly, that we'll get to heaven. And Jesus is to our culture, he says to us, don't rely on a guaranteed heaven. He's saying there is only one way and that is through Jesus. There is only one way, and it's through humility to Jesus. Luke is telling us, Jesus is telling us that God is knowable through Jesus. We can be saved, and it's wonderful, freeing news. It's not by our works, and it's not a God-given right, but it is through a God-given Son that we are saved. We saw earlier through the picture of the cross in verses 31 to 35, the journey that Jesus had to go on, that Jesus has gone on for us. And Luke flips it on his head. It's not the people who expect it by merit. It is the least likely. He who humbles himself will be exalted. Humbly accepting Jesus is what saves I would kick myself if I didn't even offer it after going through what it is to be saved. That If you're here tonight and you've never trusted Jesus in your heart, know that the offer is there and freely available. Salvation is possible. We are able to be saved by Jesus, our Savior. So who is saved is not those who resist, not those who judge, not those who exalt, but those who humble themselves before Jesus. Where do you stand with the question of eternity? Are you pushing the lifeboat back, pushing it away? Nothing can save but Jesus. And those of us who have humbled themselves before Jesus to this wonderful gospel message, who say, not me, but him, those who say, I can't do it on my own, humbling ourselves and saying, I'm not good enough. I don't have the right works. Nothing can save. The person says, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I have wronged people. I have wronged God. I don't deserve any of your mercy. I don't deserve any of your grace. This is who is saved. This is the Christian hope that we don't have to lie in bed each night and think, was I good enough? God saved us despite us not being good enough knowing we never will be. We often feel we've let God down or we've acted wrongly, but that's not what saves us. We often feel we miss the mark or even question if we are saved, but that's not what saves us. It's humbly accepting Jesus, going to Jesus in all humility, saying, I can't do this and I need you. Nothing of our own doing. And Christian, we need to love this. It's really, really easy to remember this when we're saved. In that moment when we became a Christian, we realize how good God is, how good his grace is towards us. Then we fill up our time with rotas, fill up our time with helping at clubs, speaking with people, leading Bible studies, handing out flyers at CU, events weeks, even preaching. But it is in our humility that we were saved. Not at our best, not while we were leading Bible studies or handing out flyers, but at our very worst, Jesus saved us. Knowing our very worst, he saved us. And knowing that we would not follow him perfectly. Knowing our worst and he gives us his best. It is wonderful news, the gospel message. And it is so, so simple. And yet we'll spend a whole lifetime trying to understand how it makes any sense. Let us love Jesus all the more. Let us love his stupendous grace shown towards us. How little we deserved it. We're not Pharisees, but followers of Jesus. And this is just an opportunity for us to remember how good God is towards us. What Jesus did when he went to the cross, despite the Pharisees trying to pull him away, he went to die a sinner's death for us. He came, lived, and died so that we can live with him eternally. Jesus is our Saviour. That is what saves us. Jesus and nothing of our own doing. Let's remember this and rejoice in it. It's a wonderful message, it's gospel gold. The truth that saves, humbly accepting all that Jesus has done and nothing of our own. He said, I have to go to Jerusalem. It's the only way my people will be saved. It's the only way. Let's remember this. Let's pray. and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel message. We thank you that it is nothing of our own doing that saves us. We thank you that Jesus came, lived, and died. We pray that we'd remember how little we do to be saved, and we pray we'd remember how good it is to be saved. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.